This is C-SPAN's The Weekly for April 6, 2018. I'm Steve Scully in Washington. Her one insistence was that Ronald Reagan not know about it. She wanted, she felt like she would not be so nervous if she was surprising him and she would focus on that. Our guest is Sheila Tate for an up-close look at former First Lady Nancy Reagan. Sheila Tate served as Mrs. Reagan's press secretary from 1981 to 1985, later co-founded the public relations firm Powell Tate. From the White House years to Ronald Reagan's long goodbye as he battled Alzheimer's to her own legacy, she shares stories from her newly released book, Lady in Red, an intimate portrait of Nancy Reagan. Sheila Tate, what do you want readers to come away from your book on Nancy Reagan? I want people to know the the full profile of Nancy Reagan. I, to, to this day, I think most people have a very sketchy cardboard cutout view of her. And there was so much more to her. Um, I witnessed it, other staffers. And at her memorial service, more people came up to me and said, I wish more people knew the Nancy we knew. And that kind of stuck in my head, and I ruminated on it for probably a year before I even did anything about it. But I never intended to write a book, but that was the genesis of it. Why do you think she was viewed by some as one-dimensional? Well, some people wanted to view her that way. And, you know, we made a lot of mistakes at the beginning. You know, there was there was a... She dug herself into a pretty big hole with regard to her image. And we spent a lot of time working out of it. And the gridiron dinner was one of the big, you know, the big successes at getting people to give her a second chance. And she really did take advantage of that. We're going to talk about that in just a moment. But when did you first meet Nancy Reagan? Because you paint a picture of uh, a very nervous young woman (laughs) coming to meet her during the transition. Yep. It was, it was, I think it was December 12th and... 1980. 1980. And I was called by Bob Gray, who was the head of Hill and Knowlton, where I worked. And he, he was working on the campaign. And he said, there's a job op- that's opening up, and I think you'd be a good candidate. And I'd like you to go over to Blair House and be interviewed. And he didn't, he didn't say what the job was. He said he couldn't. <clears throat> and I got over there and... I was ushered finally up to see her, and by then I figured that it had to be the press secretary job because she had let go. Um, the The other press secretary had had some problems. The one she brought from California, and but she hadn't she hadn't let go of her yet. That was the deal, and so she didn't. She wasn't specific, but but we did talk about what she wanted to do, um, and she said, "I want to work on." And I want to find some way to get involved in the whole drug abuse issue, particularly with regard to kids. And I remember thinking at the time that that was an awfully depressing subject, and I wasn't sure that, you know, most first ladies did beautification things, and I I wasn't sure that that was the right thing for her, but I kept my mouth shut. And and I didn't know if I'd get the job or not, but I, I started a series then of interviews with Every from Mike Deaver to Tish Baldrige to Nancy Reynolds, and the last visit was with Jim uh, Jim Brady, who told me it was down to two people. And I said, "Well, then I want the job." And he said, "I'm voting for you." 
And that night she called and offered me the job. Why was the Just Say No campaign her project? What motivated her? <laughs> well, she just thinks, she thought the whole idea of of children ruining their lives on drugs was appalling. And I think it scared her. And she thought it was something she could really pay attention to and really become an expert at. And we did. We brought in all these, you know, all the special interest groups that were involved in the issue, parent groups, trying to figure out how to position her appropriately. Um, and how, And she also wanted to do something that she could continue to do even after Ronald Reagan left office. She wanted something that wasn't going to be dependent on federal funding or that would be um, a policy issue um, that created problems. In fact, we waited for a drug czar to be appointed before we even started because we wanted to be sure we were you know, in sync with everything that the, the Reagan administration wanted. The book is titled Lady in Red, An Intimate Portrait of Nancy Reagan. And you write about the transition the meeting between Rosalind Carter and Nancy Reagan, mm-hmm. and whether or not the Reagans, in fact, did ask the Carters to leave the White House early. Did they? I, I, I don't know for sure. All I know is she said she didn't say that. <clears throat> um, and, and it wasn't that they asked them. It was that she, the, the story was that she somehow wished they would. And that made it into the press. And I'm sure that hurt <clears throat> Rosalind and Jimmy Carter's feelings very much. I mean, he had just been defeated. So it was not a it was not a good position to be in. You also write about the inaugural ball, Frank Sinatra, his involvement in the entertainment. Yeah. What was he like to work with? Well, I didn't really work with him much. I think I was in one or two meetings. Um, Muffy Brandon used to have to work with him. And she always called him Old Blue Eyes. And... Um, he, their deal was that she would send him a list of her suggestions for appropriate entertainers for a specific state dinner, and if he didn't like her selection, it was his. It was incumbent on him to come back to her with someone who who would be good and that he could get. And that was a great little fallback to have, you know. You write about the state dinners in the book and the work that went into every detail. You're shaking your head. Uh, What do you remember about them, and and why were they so important to the Reagan White House? Because they were a diplomat. They were an extension of the diplomacy of the times. I mean, it's how they made friends and and really became um, comfortable with all the international options they had. Um, The and the dinners themselves were almost magical. I mean, they really were so beautiful and so well orchestrated. And people left feeling, as Nancy Reagan wanted them to feel, like it was the the best night of their lives. Did you find that you were rather popular during those four years of people trying to get an invite? Not through me, no. I think most of them went to the social office. One of my funniest memories was when Zsa Zsa Gabor was a guest. And... As you know, when you go to the White House, the Secret Service requires your Social Security number and whatever else. And you have to say how old you are. And she called me the day after she came to the dinner, and she asked me if I would go into whatever office it was that had her birthday and erase it. And, And so I went in and told the social office. They laughed, and they took her 
took her birthday off the list. Well, speaking of birthdays, in the book you talk about the Chris Wallace interview as you were about to leave as the White House press secretary to uh, Nancy Reagan. Uh, Explain the story. Well, of course, Chris has a long history with her. Um, Mike Wallace was one of her best friends from he was one of her mother's best friends. And so she'd known Mike all those times, and she got to know Chris when they came to the White House. And so Chris was getting ready to do a documentary, and he came in, and he sat and was ready to ask questions. And as you probably remember, Nancy was um, a little um, speculative about how old she was. And um, it was always my issue. I had to deal with the press loved to jump on me and say, so how old is she? You know, what's going on here? And I would always say, well, Nancy Reagan tells me she was born in such and such, 1922. And um, so Chris sits down for the interview and he leans forward and he said, okay, Nancy, how old are you? And she said, I haven't decided yet. And afterwards I said to her, you could have made my life so much easier if you'd only said that four years ago. And she and I both started laughing, and we just couldn't stop. It was just it was just a wonderful, funny moment. Let me go back to the state dinner and another story from the book. Uh, George Will attended a few, but often said no to state dinners, which is unusual. He, he did. In fact, he told me he was invited to the first state dinner, and he sat at the president's table. I said, well, that's an honor. And he said, well, normally it would be. But he said there was this some businessman there sitting next to, to President Reagan, and he monopolized the conversation. He said, none of us got to say a thing. And he said, I, I was so angry. I went home, and ever since then, I refused to go to state dinners. And finally, Nancy called him and said, you know, it's the, the Gorbachev dinners. And this was late in the Second term, he said, she said, it's high demand. She said, don't you want to come? And he said, I hate those things. I don't want to come. And she said, I'll seat you next to Joe DiMaggio. He said, what time should I be there? <laughs> <laughs> Let me go to another chapter in the book. March 31st, 1981. Yeah. Where were you with Nancy Reagan? Walk through that day. We were at the National Trust for Historic Preservation, and it was a lunch in her honor. Michael Ainsley was the head of the organization and at one point she dessert had been served and she looked over at me and I could tell she wanted to leave and um, so she bid her goodbye to Mr. Ainsley and we left and it turns out that was almost precisely the time that Ronald Reagan was shot she said she just felt the need to get out of there and get back to the White House we got there she went toward the residence I went the other way toward my office my phone was ringing. I answered. It was a reporter for the Star. And she said, we just had on the police radio um, a report that there'd been, there'd been gunfire at the Washington Hilton. Are you aware of it? I said, no. She said, do you know if anyone was hurt? I said, I don't know. And I hung up the phone. Raced back down the hall. She's, she was racing toward me. And um, she the Secret Service tried to get her to stay in the White House till they knew what was going on, and she said, no, he needs me, i got to go. And she didn't know he was uh, shot until she actually got out of the car and was walking toward the door, and Mike Deaver came out. By then he knew, and he told her. And 
um, she doesn't she doesn't remember any she didn't remember anything almost after that but but she went to the chapel when he was um, in surgery and in fact Sarah Brady was there so sad and and then I went down to um, talk to to find out where everybody was and what hospitals there because it was just chaotic and um, this nurse said to me, um, I said, well, where is Jim Brady? She said, Jim Brady's dead. And I said, he's dead? And she said, yes. And it was about five minutes before I found out that he was not only alive, but he was in an operating room right around the corner. And I saw him the next day at, at Sarah's insistence. I walked, was walking out and she, um, she insisted I go in and see him, and I'll, I'll never forget his head was three times the size. It was just huge. And, you know, Jim Jim was never the same. He was referred to as the bear, right. and based on your account, you loved working with him in those first oh, three months. He was fabulous. I mean, great fun, didn't take any baloney from anybody, had great ideas, was so helpful to me. I, I mean, I couldn't have... I couldn't have had a better mentor. Did the shooting change Nancy Reagan in the ensuing seven and a half years in the White House? I think so, definitely. <clears throat> in fact, I think that Ronald Reagan healed more quickly than she did. And she was terrified every time he left the confines of the White House. And I think that was the basis for her growing dependence on astrology to make her feel better that somehow if he went this day it would be safer than if he went that day she continued with the just say no campaign and this is during the second term of ronald reagan mm-hmm. here's what she was saying to young people watching or listening i have a very personal message for you there's a big wonderful world out there for you it belongs to you It's exciting and stimulating and rewarding. Don't cheat yourselves out of this promise. Our country needs you, but it needs you to be clear-eyed and clear-minded. I recently read one teenager's story. She's now determined to stay clean, but was once strung out on several drugs. What she remembered most clearly about her recovery was that during the time she was on drugs, Everything appeared to her in shades of black and gray. And after her treatment, she was able to see colors again. So to my young friends out there, life can be great, but not when you can't see it. So open your eyes to life, to see it in the vivid colors that God gave us as a precious gift to his children, to enjoy life to the fullest and to make it count. Say yes to your life. And when it comes to drugs and alcohol, just say no. September 1986. Did she make a difference? Oh, you bet she did. <clears throat> there are significant statistics that showed um, a decrease in drug use of all kinds among the age group she was focused on reaching. And it, you know, I just I wish it, I wish it were still that way. The 1980s, a very different period than today in terms of the job of a press secretary. (laughs) 
no websites, no cell phones, yeah. no social media. What was the job like for you? It was still pretty intense. I used to um, walk across my office, pick up a phone, and record her schedule for the next day so reporters could call in. That was our high-tech little instrument. Um, but, it, you know, we, we, uh, we had a really good team, and everybody worked together. And, I mean, we didn't have a lot of support for national, for trips. And, and when, when Nancy Reagan went somewhere, um, she didn't have what we call WACA, the, the White House communications apparatus. Um, we had to send someone ahead to beg the phone company to put in some phones for us, you know, that sort of thing. It was, it was a lot of hard work, but it was, it was worth every single day of it. I mean, the experience was just wonderful. Were the Reagans comfortable in the White House? Did they consider it home? Oh, yes. Mm-hmm. Very much so. I mean, she spent six or eight months, you know, restoring the private residence, and it was just, I, I was, the first time I went out to her house in California, I was struck by how much her decor there looked like her, the decor in the White House. The redecoration of the White House, mm-hmm. the china, right. her clothes, right. all painting a very different image, as you pointed out, in the first year of her uh, tenure as America's First Lady during the Reagan White House. Right. Then came the gridiron dinner. Mm-hmm. We're going to hear from her in just a moment. But how did this come about and why? I think the advantage for me was I was a Washington native and I'd grown up. And I knew about the gridiron dinner. I, I read about it every year, that off-the-record dinner that was always reported. And when it was coming up, I said, she's got to be the target. And so what I did is I I seeded my garden, and I got Mike Deaver and Jim Baker to, and I think Dave Gergen may have been one of them too, but to to agree that it would be a good idea for her to do something at the gridiron. Because I know she'd call and check see what they thought and so then I went and talked to her about it and she said she she would do it she said but I'd like to do something really significant um and um that led to development of this second and we brought in that's when we brought in Landon Parvin and we wrote the lyrics to secondhand well we got Helen Thomas and the president of the uh, gridiron were over to see us within an hour of my phone call and um he brought me the lyrics that had been written already and were being rehearsed to making fun of her. So we had that to go on, and we knew how we could respond. And um, uh, so Landon and I worked together on that thing, and it turned out beautifully. And in the meantime, her uh, social secretary, Muffy Brandon, was in charge of finding the wardrobe for her. And she took stuff from her daughters and she had, you know, yellow boots and a big feather boa and mismatched clothes and plaids and flowers. And it was just horrendous looking. And once Nancy was satisfied with that, she practiced and practiced and practiced up, up in the White House. Ronald And her one, prom, her one insistence was that Ronald Reagan not know about it. She, wanted, she felt like she would not be so nervous if she was surprising him, and she would focus on that. So um, we had someone take her outfit over to the hotel early. We got there, and it was an incredible night. Um, 
I mean, it's like it happened yesterday. It's so vivid in my memory. I was sitting between two publishers, and she, at, as the chorus, the gridiron chorus started to sing about her, she gets up and leaves. And this, the guy on my left leaned behind my back to the guy on my right, and he said, Nancy Reagan just left. He said, I bet she's pissed. And meanwhile, my my head was pounding. I was so nervous. And and Landon was funny, too, because he was. she kept telling him to go back and make sure the outfit was all ready and everything. And at one point, he had to go to the men's room. He said, all the urinals were taken. So he went into a stall. And he said, I forgot I was in in white tie and white tails. And he said, as a result, I spent the rest of the night in white tie and wet tails. <laughs> <laughs> and But so anyway, um, the rest is history. I mean, she went out there and she wowed them. I mean, people, people, as soon as they realized who it was, they started to scream. As soon as she sang the first time, they demanded an encore. And the second time, people were up just screaming. Screaming! I've never seen a reaction like that, and it was like the 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 whole atmosphere had changed, and and this she really had turned things around, and now now it was time to really show who she was. Of course, no recordings that night, but with Rick uh, Smith, she recreated the lyrics from 1988. Nancy Reagan, let's listen. So her acting skills came in handy that night. They did. They did. She was wonderful. She left the White House in 1989, and a lot of speculation on President Reagan's Alzheimer's. What was he like when he left the White House? When was he diagnosed with Alzheimer's? 1994. Um, And, you know, I've talked to Secret Service agents. They said they saw no signs. And this is guys who rode with him every day out in California. They said they saw no signs. No signs. So I think that's, I think that is probably exactly what happened. And Alzheimer's is kind of a slow process. And, and I suspect that it was setting in and, and it was finally, they, they, the friends said they started noticing things in 93. And the diagnosis was in 94. In December of 1999, C-SPAN's Brian Lamb out at the Reagan Library talked to Nancy Reagan about her husband's condition. What have you learned about this disease? That is probably the worst disease you can ever have. Why? Because you lose contact and you're not able to share, in our case, you're not able to share all those wonderful memories that that we have. And we had a, we had a wonderful life. Can you have a conversation that makes sense to you with the president? Not now. No. 
That was from 1999. You call it the long goodbye. Yes, she called it the long goodbye. I like hearing her voice, too. <laughs> you know, it's, it's a terrible disease. It really is. They haven't found a cure yet. When was the last time you talked to Nancy Reagan? Oh, maybe six weeks before she died. She would call me, or I would occasionally call her, but usually it was she would call me. And that was funny because she always said, everybody thinks I'm busy and they won't call me. So I call them. And when I, you know, I lost my husband in 1998. And, and she insisted on calling me every week at my office. I'd close the door and she'd make me cry. And she said, if you don't cry, she said her dad taught her that grieving people have to cry. It's part of the process. And, um, for instance, I'd go out to lunch with Jody Powell, and he'd say, how are you doing? I'd say, I'm fine, and I'd burst into tears. And he'd go, oh, no, no, I won't talk about it. You know, that was sort of the way people dealt with it. And she made me talk about it. For a year, we talked. She was a wonderful friend. And we remember from Tom Brokaw in his eulogy and from your book, she loved to tell stories. Can you talk about that? She loved to hear what was going on in Washington. Oh, yeah. She lo- she wanted to know what the latest gossip was, you know. But the other side of her was if you told her something in confidence, it never went anywhere else, ever. And I can't tell you how many people mentioned that to me. Doug Wick, people like that who, who told me how incredible, uh, a strong personality she was and how, how you could depend on her for something like that. You will be at the Reagan Library later this month. We'll be covering it for C-SPAN 2's Book TV. But what can people learn from Nancy Reagan as they tour the Ronald Reagan Library? Um, That perfectionism isn't a bad thing. She was always uh, criticized for being a perfectionist, but everything she did, she tried to make perfect. And that library is a good example. I've never, ever seen such a wonderful place. And, And everyone I know who goes there has the same reaction be able to go on Air Force One and, and you know, walk down the aisles of the plane that they flew in um, to see their exhibits are wonderful. They keep changing them. Um, it's it's the, the, the actual location they picked for the library. I'll never forget one time being uh, up, up there and President Reagan was showing somebody, he was up, they had a private apartment up in the top floor, and he was showing somebody looking over the edge of the balcony, and he said, that's where I'm going to be planted someday. That's a nice memory to have, knowing how comfortable he was with, you know, his demise. There are two stories I want you to touch on briefly before we conclude the letter that she wrote to Hillary Clinton and the non-response, and then the luncheon that Laura Bush hosted Mm -hmm. for Nancy Reagan. Yeah. Yeah, the only thing Nancy Reagan ever said to me about Hillary Clinton was that when when Bill Clinton was elected, because Jackie Kennedy had been so helpful to her, she thought she would also try to be helpful to Hillary. And so she offered to give her the benefit of any of her of her experience um, in a note. And she never heard back from her. And she said, from then on, I had no use for her. 
That was the, that was one of the harshest things I've ever heard her say. Um, Laura had the most wonderful lunch in the solarium. Nancy was in town for something else, and and she asked Nancy to provide a guest list of people she liked, women she liked to see, and so she put it together. I was lucky enough to be invited, and it was just a wonderful lunch, and and it was wonderful to see her back in the White House as a guest and enjoying herself. And finally, Sheila Tate, your last chapter in the book. Mm-hmm. What will readers take away from that? I hate to talk about it because I want people to read it. It's, I mean, when, when I learned about this, I learned about it from Robert Higdon, who was sitting on a bench at the memorial, and he was sobbing. And he he had been with Nancy Reagan. He visited with her, um, you know, several times a week. And and within days of her dying, he's, he was with her. And and he brought with him a dog. And that's, that's the part of the story that makes the chapter not sad. The book is titled Lady in Red, which, by the way, was her favorite color, correct? You bet. An Intimate Portrait of Nancy Reagan by Sheila Tate, a friend of Nancy Reagan, former press secretary during the first term of Ronald Reagan, Thanks very much for stopping by the C-SPAN Radio Studios. It's an honor. Thank you for listening to C-SPAN's The Weekly Podcast. You can find us on Twitter at C-SPAN Radio and find other episodes and more on our free C-SPAN Radio app or online anytime at cspan.org.